0: Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Mark Erickson, who is a software engineer at Northrop Grumman and a maintainer for the open source project Redux. Mark joins us today from Dayton, Ohio in the United States. Erickson. We're so glad to have you on Maintainable.
1: Hi, glad to be here.
0: So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, maintainable software code?
1: I I could think of a few different things. I, I think it's important to be able to find the code for a given bit of functionality very easily. You should be able to look at the code and have some understanding of what it's actually trying to do and why it's trying to do it in the first place. You should be able to actually make changes to the code fairly easily and be able to iterate on things that you're working on and actually see the changes reflected in the app right away, like as you're fixing a bug or developing a new feature. Um, it's, It's very important to be able to debug the code efficiently and understand how the data is flowing through the app. You should have confidence that the code is actually correct and then you should be able to deliver that code to production in a fairly straight, straightforward manner.
0: And when you say things like "fairly easily change code," is what are what are some of those parameters that you would use to, to define that? Is it a time-based thing, like I, like it shouldn't take me too long to do that, or is it more of a
1: like if I'm going in to fix a bug or work on a new feature, I should be able to pinpoint where the code is actually actually lives in order to make that change in the first place. I should have a good understanding of how this piece of code relates to the rest of the code base and the business functionality that's involved. And I should be able to actually try to find a way to add the new thing so that it, it cleanly fits into the structure of the rest of the code base or I'm able to refactor things without having to go and touch dozens of other files that would just fall apart if I make one edit.
0: Do you find that there's some... Um best practices that you're trying to work like within your the types of projects that you're working on in terms of uh, like automated test cover like testing and or like when you're making what what provides you confidence to make those types of refactoring decisions
1: I've always been really weak on the whole writing unit tests thing myself I understand the theory I totally agree with all the reasons for doing it but it's always been that thing that kind of gets shoved off till the end of the task and eh, well, we're too busy. Let's move on to the next thing. And so on. Uh, Having said that, I can say that I've been working on a project for the last several months that did have a a fairly extensive unit test suite across some of the backend server APIs. And I've been doing a lot of refactoring to migrate that code to TypeScript and, and change some things around and that code has saved me, or those tests have saved me repeatedly as I made what I thought was a perfectly innocuous refactoring that preserved the intent, and nope, nope, you missed it, and half the tests start failing. So there, there is extremely high value in having some kind of a test suite set up to capture the intended behavior of that
0: code. For, I appreciate you uh, being open about that, because I'm not ever, I think... There's a lot of people that will talk about testing, but like and like know that it's like, well, yeah, people talk about it as a best practice, but not it's not always something that everybody's picked up on and baked into their typical workflow. And depending on the technology stacks and programming languages and things that you're using, there's a different levels of complexity for how you would even approach that. And or you've joined projects that have been around for a while and you're like, well, in theory that'd be great if there were tests here already, but someone didn't add those before I joined it's it's not on the uh, the product backlog necessarily like start backfilling tests as much as other people might wish that were to be the case at times in, the, in those types of scenarios where you're working on projects and you know thinking about refactoring you know i mean you're still testing right to some degree like you're validating it works
1: right i mean we're, we're always testing things somehow the question is what techniques are you using to test it i mean no one's going to I hope no one's going to write a 20-line bug fix or a 300-line new feature and never run the code and just assume that the code works as soon as you've written it. So you're at least going to run the code in your own system and try to see that it does what you intend. That's a form of testing. It's a very manual testing. It's not very repeatable. Then you step your up and step up your your way through. Okay, I'm going to write some automated unit tests that exercise the functions. I'm going to write some integration tests that exercise larger pieces, and to end tests that actually drive the whole application. The question is, how much time and effort are you putting into that, and how much benefit are you getting out of those potential levels of tests? It's
0: a it's a, it's a good point. Do you use the metaphor technical debt very often in your day to day work?
1: I've referred to it frequently. I've seen varying definitions of how people want to try to use it, and there's probably valid reasons to describe it in all those different ways. Um, I'll, I'll give a concrete example from this project that I'm doing with at the moment. It's a classic Angular JS one mean.js web application, and the client-side logic is based around a lot of HTML templates. And unfortunately they have a lot of embedded JavaScript in them for doing things like data binding and looping and thus far in my time on the project I have not found a good way to debug what actually is going on in those templates I kind of have to guess on the other hand if I'm working with a typical react application I can use the React DevTools to inspect the component tree. I can throw breakpoints directly into my JavaScript components. It's a lot easier to trace what's actually going on. Now, the Angular code works mostly, I think, but it's, it's a lot harder to trace what's going on and be able to determine what should be happening or how I can best make a change to it. So it, it it slows down the process of making those changes considerably.
0: You know, you were just saying that how technical debt is just defined differently. You know, by by different people. If you were to, you know, as you reflect on that, how have you seen, in your opinion, people miss? Categorize or misuse technical debt in, in conversations, perhaps with, with it with within a team or with say uh, project stakeholders.
1: I'm I'm not sure I've seen necessarily seen mischaracterizations. It's just that I've seen differing definitions in various online discussions. If I had to try to phrase it myself, it would be technical choices you've made that make it harder to do any of the maintainable criteria that I listed earlier. So you've picked a legacy technology that's not supported anymore. You've picked a technology where it's harder to debug the code. You've structured your code base in a way that it's really hard to find the functionality or the data flow bounces through 25 different files and 15 levels of abstraction. And, and it's it makes it harder to make those changes. Now you know a lot of times this is because you know the technology that you chose at the time was new and shiny or the project was getting off the ground and we needed to build something with some base level of functionality as quickly as possible so you built stuff maybe not necessarily architecting for the future so i think that, i think that's where the the financial debt metaphor comes in you you took out the loan early on to get something done but you got to pay it back later
0: So as you know, you reflect on like Greenfield projects and legacy projects, exactly how many weeks does it take for a Greenfield code to become legacy code?
1: I'd say it's a legacy code within the first 30 seconds. You've written it, now you have to deal with it. Now, you know, maybe it's good legacy code, you know what it's supposed to do, and you've maybe even gone so far as to write some tests for it, but that is now existing code that you have to work with, that you have to structure, that you have to understand. So I, I, I can make a strong argument that it's it's legacy as soon as you type semicolon.
0: Hmm. And I wonder if there's also maybe a way of thinking about that when someone else has to deal with it and they're not really sure how to piece it together. So it could be like at the same time or is like even during the pull request process, are you at that point sending it over to someone and they're like, I don't really understand what you're doing here is it already a legacy code before it's even been merged eh.
1: once it's once it's actually merged in and going it's and someone else is dealing with it definitely
0: I think I'm noodling on some like blog topic ideas in, in my back of my head. So, th- thanks for uh, voluntarily, <laughs> unknowingly volunteer to be kind of to b- let me bounce some ideas off you there. So, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about some of your open source project work, in particular as a maintainer of Redux. So, for those listening who might not be familiar with Redux, what is Redux?
1: Redux is a JavaScript library to help you manage global state in primarily web applications. It is most commonly used with React, but can be used with a number of other UI frameworks as well. And it operates on the principle that you should try to write as much of your code possible as pure functions that take the existing state and some event that happened in your application and calculate what a new returned state should
0: be based on those two. Interesting. And did you create Redux? Definitely not. So how did you find your way into now being a, an active maintainer of the project?
1: Entirely by accident. Uh, I started learning React in the middle of 2015. And about a year earlier, Facebook had announced this concept called the Flux architecture, uh, kind of in response to the, the backbone model-based approach to writing web application frameworks. And so over the next year dozens of different Flux-inspired libraries came out. And so I was reading articles and discussions about these as I was trying to get up to speed on what this React thing was. And it was right about that same time that Redux was being written. Uh, Over the course of the next few months, I found a set of React-dedicated chat channels called React to Flux. Started hanging out there, working, reading, learning. Eventually got to the point where I knew the answers to some questions started answering those questions, started collecting links to useful resources to help answer those questions. And in early 2016, I volun—I half volunteered to write an FAQ page for the Redux documentation. Uh, Dan Abramov, the primary creator of Redux, gave me commit rights after I wrote that page. And he was later hired to work on the React team at Facebook. So by the middle of the next summer, he turned to myself and another maintainer named Tim and said, you've got the keys. Have fun.
0: Nice. Do you, you know, it's interesting how it's conceivingly like these stories don't start off like I'm assuming you didn't like, as you said, it was an accident. You didn't set out to be like, you know what? I want to become a maintainer of this project and like get super involved in, in this particular project. Was this your first foray into open source?
1: Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, and if you'd asked me. Six or seven years ago, I would have said, "I, I like I, I have nothing meaningful to offer the community. I'm happy to work and read what other people have done, but there's no way I would ever have anything useful to help out."
0: It's it's not an uncommon perspective, I think that people have. I think there's a lot of people, you know, they they consume, use you know, they, as I mean, in some ways you are you participating in the open source community by using the, the open source technology that, you know, and such. But I think there's also a certain level of like, when you start making that engagement of like, submitting a an issue in like, you know, in the project, like, hey, I, I had an issue, you know, that that is a way to contribute uh, writing documentation, improving the documentation is often something that I'm always like advising, like, especially like, um, like our interns that we have in my company, like that's always like, I'm like, we don't, we want you to contribute to open source. And like, who who am I? I'm just some new person. And I'm like, I want you to go, like, go play. If like, for example, like go through and try to use this this, this tool and, and they're like, okay. And then they might have, have an issue. I'm like, well, let's, that's, let's open up your first, you know, issue on GitHub for, and we'll, we'll like navigate that or the documentation wasn't clear. So why don't we make a pull request of so make, make that a little clearer because you have fresh perspective that a lot of other people don't that are like actively using this day in and day out that they take for granted. So documentation is always one of those really great ways, I think, for people to get involved. What advice would you offer to those listening that had to start contributing? And like if they're looking for something like, oh, I want to participate. Like, how, what was it about that project or the scenario at that point in time? You're like, I'm going to go take that first step and do that.
1: In my case, I've always enjoyed sharing information that I've learned, and I've always spent a lot of time collecting useful information of one kind or another. And it really boiled down to I saw a need. You know, clearly people had the same kinds of questions. I was seeing them on Reddit and Stack Overflow and Reactive Flux and everywhere else. And I'd seen the information that actually answered those questions. And so it made sense to try to consolidate it and put it up on the actual docs. And since I was the one who had the idea, I guess I could try doing it, if you say so.
0: We'll be back with our interview with Mark in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or TikTok, or MySpace, or Twitter, or Orcutt, or Friendster, or Instagram, or at the locally social distanced hair salon, wherever. Anyways, I just want to say thank you. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, let's get back to our interview with Mark Erickson. I'm curious about documentation best practices from your, your end because it's FAQ has become this thing in my world, especially for internal documentation in my company. I'm like, everything we should do should be like FAQ driven in a lot of ways. And like, it's, I don't know where I got this idea from necessarily, but do you have strong like opinions on like effective ways of teaching people how to how to perform something or how to do something? versus like procedural, like step one, step two type of information versus like here's information you should probably be asking yourself?
1: Well, it's it's funny you say kind of FAQ-driven documentation stuff because I've actually seen a couple people argue that if you if you need to write an FAQ, the rest of your documentation isn't good enough. Um, I, can, I can see both points on that. So some of my... I guess, thoughts on writing documentation are, well, this is just the way way I naturally explain things anyway. But I I did actually take some time earlier this year to do some research on what are some good approaches and recommendations and and things like that for writing documentation. Uh, I want to call out three resources in particular. There's a company or site called Divio. They have a lot of documentation on how to write documentation and they suggest that technology documentation should be split into four categories. Tutorials to learn how to do a thing or how to use a thing to begin with. How-to guides saying here are certain patterns. Explanations to explain why you do things certain ways. And references. So for example, in the Redux docs, we have A tutorial on how do you even use Redux in the first place we have you know some recipes on setting up a Redux store we have explanations on like why does Redux works this way we have the API reference for what functions can you call on a Redux store and all those are valuable for different people trying to solve different problems Uh, I also want to call out the view library Docs have an excellent Excellent style guide with recommendations on how to approach explaining things, and I, I recently uh, learned about someone named Stephanie Marillo who's pretty active on Twitter, and she does a lot of has a lot of very good suggestions on content and marketing and how to write for different categories of people.
0: That's awesome. I'll definitely include links to those in the share notes for everybody as well, and check some of that out myself there. I'm super curious. As a fellow uh, open source project maintainer myself, I was always looking for ways to help improve that type of information. So, you know, let's imagine a few people that are listening that haven't yet contributed to open source projects yet. Um, and you mentioned like just, you know, documentation being what, what advice would you offer them on how do you like take that step into submitting like their first pull request or contributing something to any, any, should they just do it or should they like raise the, raise the idea of like, Hey, does any, I feel like this should be worked on or should they just submit something?
1: It depends on what you're looking to submit in the first place. Um, if it's a, you know, like fixing a typo or something, those are always welcome. And it's a great way to at least get through the process of how do I file that first PR how do I clone the repo, make the change, put it up? Fixing typos is useful. It may not be glamorous, but it's helpful. Um, if it's a larger rewrite to an existing section or adding a new piece of documentation, it's probably worth filing an issue to at least first bring this to the attention of the maintainers. You know, maybe maybe they're not looking to make a change to that section right now or, they could point you to some further resources that say, oh, if you're going to write about this, you should include this bit of information and link to this other discussion over here. Um, but you know, pick a, pick a tool that you have some understanding or have used already. Uh, you don't have to be a complete master of that tool, but it helps to have some idea what it's supposed to be doing in the first place just so you're more comfortable
0: trying to approach it. Yeah, that makes sense. So I also want to, you know, I know that you're an active blogger. You've been blogging for a number of years now. What is it about this medium that you feel like worked well for you?
1: I've always been able to spend a lot of time describing things in great detail. It's kind of a family trait. And again, like when I started blogging, it was almost more for myself than for a large community. I mean, I was writing it for other people to read it. I didn't really expect a lot of other people to read what I had to say especially given the fact that I I maintain Redux and I'm heavily involved in the React community, I've found that I keep answering the same kinds of questions over and over on on Reddit, on Twitter, in Reactiflux. And if I've answered the same question several times, then it's probably worth writing down so I don't have to keep repeating the same answer every time. And That way it's also kind of accessible to a broader audience. So a lot of my blog posts have come out of specific questions that I've seen in various places.
0: That reminds me of how some of my early era um, blogging was too, was like there wasn't a lot of documentation for things and there'd be questions and I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. And I find myself wanting to start replying to something in a mailing list and being like, you know what, I'm going to make this a blog post and then I'll respond with a link to the blog post and then that might be a way to like help other people in the future, or at least remember this myself, or, or one of the or those times where you're trying to figure something out and yourself, and you're just like, I search for this on the internet. I couldn't find an answer. Might as well write this for myself the next time I Google this or whatever. So uh, that that's another effective way. Uh, you know, I, I know I know a lot of developers are nervous about sharing. I know you, you said you like to collect information and links and and like to describe things in detail. And some people might feel like they don't have anything new to contribute and are even sure where to begin with producing content and sharing it. Like, what advice could you offer them?
1: So I was listening to your discussion with Allie Spittle a few months ago, and I thought she had some really good answers on this particular topic, which is there's going to be lots and lots of people who have said this kind of thing already. You know, there's tens of thousands of React tutorials or how to get started with Rails or something like that. And so... Your write-up might not necessarily add anything new to the discussion. On the other hand, it's also possible that your perspective might be different, or the way you explain things might be something that clicks with somebody. And even if no one actually even reads your article, which is entirely possible, the act of having to think through something and explain it is valuable just for Mm. your own understanding. That's a really good point.
0: The like the, what do they say? It's like the rubber duck,
1: rubber duck debugging.
0: Yeah. It's like trying to describe it to someone else or to something, you know, could be an inanimate object on your desk, the concept or the challenge you're working through. And that sometimes helps you come to some like other way of thinking about it like, Oh, like sparks a new idea for something. But I think, I do think the, uh, the benefit of needing to explain things to other people help helps you grow as a, as a developer quite a bit. I'm, I'm also curious, you know, when you're, how do you go about thinking of new content ideas? Do you keep like a, do you have like a formula for that that you, that you found works well for you?
1: Still mostly questions that people have asked. Uh, I, I just kind of a notepad of possible ideas. Um, I, I recently started a new post series that I dubbed coding career advice for lack of a better term. And the first two posts were on the value of keeping a daily work journal—you know, just keeping you know 10 to 15 minutes in the day, jot down what I worked on, who I talked to, what I got to do tomorrow—as um, well as how to correctly evaluate third-party libraries as possible dependencies. Uh, neither of these are particularly new topics. There's lots of other resources out there. But these are things that I have experience with and have found valuable. So again, I might as well write it down and share it just in case anyone else finds it useful.
0: I'm actually, if you're, if you're open to it, I'm curious about this uh, daily work journal. Like you, it sounded like you, you might've said that that was towards the end of the day type of activity or what's the, uh, what do you find is the benefit of doing that?
1: Oh, a a bunch of things. So yeah, it's the last thing I do before I turn off the work computer for the day, um, Like I said, I I write down what I worked on, who I talked to, uh, what my team is doing, problems that I ran into, how I hopefully solve them. Whoops, I got stuck in the middle of this. I'll have to pick up with it tomorrow. And it serves a bunch of useful purposes. Like there's been times where I run into an issue. It's like, okay, I know I I solved this six months ago. I can't remember the details. Let me flip back through through the notes app. And hopefully I was smart enough to write down the solution previously, or especially when it comes time for the annual performance review cycle where you got to do your self-evaluation and tell how wonderful you are. And being able to go back through the whole year and say on a day-by-day basis, here is everything I was doing, let me sum that up into some higher-level points of stuff I did, makes that process a lot easier.
0: That's interesting. Do you have any, you know, I, I've always aspired to do that. And I've, I've done it in, like infrequently at different points. And there's this part of me that I've always been kicking myself, even as just like someone that runs a, owns a business, like wishing I had, I'm like, you know, I've been through these scenarios. So how was I feeling about this type of problem six years ago? And I'm like, I'm, I was dealing with it what did I, how did I navigate that decision? You know, I know what I did kind of, I might have a fuzzy memory there about what, what actually happened, or at least, I know, there's a lot of like ways of looking back and kind of ignoring things you don't want to remember anymore. So, so it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. Have you, do you do things like reflect on, you know, like you do it on a daily basis? Does that apply to also your open source work? Is that part of your normal work day, Or is that like then extra time that you're doing that?
1: the the open source stuff i do is entirely outside the day job
0: so how do you how do you find a clear separation you know you said that you shut the computer off necessarily uh, you have a different open source computer
1: uh per- personal laptop versus work laptop yeah
0: ah okay that makes sense yeah it's it's interesting especially like you know i don't know if you're previously were working distributed or remote prior to this pandemic that we're we're finding ourselves in right now um i know that i'm always so curious how people are trying to set up routines and habits for themselves to have a clear boundary between work and non-work time do have you figured anything out for yourself there
1: so I, I was previously working from an office and transitioned to working from home in March, like most other people. Uh, i had always figured I would struggle with working from home—you know, too easy to get distracted, you know, too hard to get out of bed in the morning, that kind of thing. Uh, it's actually gone a lot better than I thought it would have. Um, the work-life boundary has actually been blurring slightly as of late. There were a couple Monday nights where I got involved in some particular task late in the day. Moved over to the couch, spent the evening watching football, and also still working on that task the rest of the evening. Um, I I keep telling my team that work life balance is a good thing. I may not be setting the best example at the moment, but on the other hand, at least it was my decision because it was a problem that I wanted to solve versus having to work to a deadline or
0: something. I think, you know, I'm not surprised that to hear people are dealing with that. I mean, that happens to me sometimes. I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to put this thing on in the background on TV and I'm just going to keep, I want to plug away this a little bit longer it's like it's scratching an itch, but, uh, I know that that whole blurry line can be challenging for people. Or so, you know, as you're thinking, you know, that whole, do you think that process of going remote has been easier for you than you thought because other, everybody's kind of needed to deal with it or.
1: Not necessarily. I mean, this is just my own personality. Um, I liked having to get up and, and get to the office it took a while for the coffee to sink in and for me to actually stop reading Reddit and finally get down to being productive, but at least it forced me to get out of bed on a routine basis and get into the office and know that I eventually needed to be productive. And so like I've managed to stick to the schedule of actually getting up in the morning and, you know, I transition over to my little office setup area. And once I turn on the laptop and get going, I'm, I'm basically as productive as I would have been in the office, surprisingly. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com slash referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks.
0: You know big picture wise do you find yourself more often on team rewrite or team refactor? why not both? oh go on tell me more
1: I, I I don't have a a big set of overarching rules for when it necessarily makes sense to do one or the other, but I have been involved in in both of them in some way uh, I'd have to go back and kind of count up the days, but it's, also, it's entirely possible I've spent more of my time working on rewritten versions of apps than necessarily doing fresh development, um, even for apps that I, was, that I built in the first place. So you know, with the project I'd been on for a number of years, we were progressively refactoring the original backbone UI implementation to use React instead. And we'd integrated React into the middle of the backbone. We were building new features in React. We were progressively converting some existing functionality to React if it made sense to do it at the time based on our other priorities. And we got authorization to go ahead and finish doing the migration And as we were starting to look at how much effort it would take i realized that okay if we continue trying to do this migration in place we're going to spend a lot of time with compatibility layers like if i swap out this particular list item to be done in react then its parent is still done in backbone and i still have to have the compatibility layer between the two okay Maybe now is the time to just go ahead and greenfield the entire UI layer, keeping the same backend. We know what functionality we need to have. We can continue keeping the old UI running as a working example, but we can set up a new subproject within the repo and begin rebuilding this UI from scratch Using good architecture, best practices. We're gonna have tests this time. We really mean it, and all the other things programmers say to themselves when when they start a new project.
0: It's interesting. You know, we we have actually there's a there's a project we've been working on, kind of in, occasionally getting to jump back into, and it's been a backbone to React migration on, on within a Ruby on Rails application and. It's like it just resur- resurfaced again recently that they're like oh yeah there's some kind of unfinished pieces still there backbone is still there it's interesting you're saying that you're blending them into to each other have you used that as a pattern very often versus just like just take, rip the uh, Band-Aid off and figure out how to like do a rewrite every time or is that, has that been a pretty common type of pattern that you've been able to you know implore.
1: So the caveat is I've only actually worked on a few projects over the course of my career. So in, in the one sense, my experience is limited. But yes, interop between a legacy implementation and a new implementation is something I've done quite a bit. So you know, like I said, I, I was figured out how to add React and Redux in the middle of an existing backbone UI. And in many places, we even have data from backbone models being fed through a compatibility layer into React components. I got transitioned over to that Angular JS app earlier this year that I mentioned. And one of the first things I saw was that the build tooling for that was very out of date and it was severely limiting our ability to actually work on the code. For example, there was no way to actually install NPM packages for use within the client code base It was using an older obsolete package manager called Bower, which was declared dead by its own maintainers multiple years ago. So I wanted to try to be able to use modern best practices in terms of using dependencies from NPM, proper bundling, splitting things between the application chunk and the vendor chunk. Um, And I knew that the Create React App Tool did all that kind of stuff for you because it wraps Babel and Webpack and other similar tools. But Create React App is very opinionated and it expects that you've set up your code base as a brand new React project with a certain folder structure and things organized in very specific ways. But it all—it it is possible to kind of reach into the guts of Create React App and fiddle with the settings and override things. You're not supposed to. You're kind of voiding the warranty, but it is possible and so I actually spent a few weeks and was able to configure Create React Apps Build Tooling to build a legacy AngularJS 1 application code base. And not only did it work, but that's allowed us to then begin adding React and TypeScript in the middle of the legacy AngularJS. And so once again, we've been able to add new features as islands of React in the middle of the legacy Angular, and as well as migrate some existing features to React and TypeScript. And while I still don't have a lot of confidence in the existing Angular code, at least I know that these pieces, I, I have a lot more confidence that those work as
0: expected. Nice. Is this something that you've written about on your your blog and such?
1: Indeed, I, I wrote a post titled, building a AngularJS mean app with Create React app. Uh, And I actually need to write a follow-up post. I I wrote that a few months ago. Uh, Since then, we've taken a number of additional steps. Uh, For example, the the long-term plan is to migrate away from the entire Angular code base. And again, I don't want to do it just piecemeal within the original code base. I'd like to set something up with good practices from day 1. It's an internal app, it's not widely used, but there are active users on a daily basis, so we can't just stop you know touching the existing code base and rebuild it all from scratch for 6 months and not deliver anything. We have to do it incrementally. So, I was able to set up a new sub project using the next.js react based framework, get that server running behind our existing express app cut an iframe in the existing UI and show content from what is technically an entirely separate application seamlessly within the existing UI. And so I think that's our long-term migration approach is we've got the ability to build code on this new platform, and we'll, we'll pick a page, pick a route, pick a feature, move it over there, continue to show it within the existing UI layout, and then eventually that's all gone, and the new code base is the, the app.
0: Nice. It's a, it seems like a really kind of clever way to approach that and being able to iterate your way through it because you're, as you said, you can't always, you don't always have the luxury of all this time to go through an extensive, like, entire replacement because that's not helping the, you know, the product necessarily to be in this weird transitional state of being like, no new features or new no, no new updates until we figure out how to get this completely redone. So that, that's interesting. So I'll definitely include links to that um, in your blog and in, in, in the show notes as well. All right. So as we kind of wrap things up, I have a couple of quick last questions for you. One, if you could ask hundreds of software engineers one question for them to reflect on right now, what would that question be? Mm-hmm. One thing that comes to mind is that early on in the Ruby on Rails community, there wasn't a lot of articles and content and tutorials. There was a few on how to do things. And I was trying to figure out how to do stuff and I was writing blog posts about things and I found there, I would hit these problems where I'm like, I don't like no one's around to really answer this question. there were like, there was mailing lists and you might hear about responses and feeling comfortable enough to uh, like just open up the underlying libraries of the, the software that I was, you know, and like within that, and like that scenario is like a active record is the, their ORM in, in Ruby on Rails and digging into the code a little bit and just trying to map how things were working. I'm like, Oh, that's why it's not doing what I thought it would do. That makes sense. And, and I think if like, like if you had asked me like six months before that, if I'd be feeling comfortable enough to dive that deep into like a framework of like that, I would have been like, there's no way I'm not that smart of a developer, but I was it didn't take me a lot of long to feel like, oh, I know how to like kind of dig into this and like make sense of how the framework that I can build on top of, like it's actually not so scary if you look underneath the hood sometimes. And so I think once I got through that and that, that's persisted over the years and I think I've had a number of times where I'd be pairing with um, one of my employees or an intern on the team, we'd be trying to figure something out with like a third-party library that we're using and then I'd be like, well, let's open it up. You know, like, what do you, I'm like, let's just let like, like, then they're like, that might be an inclination to go like, okay, we're going to go to the GitHub project and go click around in the interface and like, see what code's there. I'm like, no, like, 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 let's, let's open up the library and in, in our code editor, like it's, it's on your computer, you've installed it already. When you did a gem install, let's literally just go up, that folder's on your computer. Let's just go open it up and poke around. Let's, let's see if we can change things. And they're like, what, you can do that? And I'm like, yeah, let's go change. And then like, if it just we can just change it. And like, let's just see if let's put some debug statements in the third party library that we're using. And they're just like, "Ah!" and it's like, I don't know. That thing is like, so it's been great to be able to like show other people that. And I mean, I'm not saying like, it's like some crazy thing to be doing, but like everybody listening could do that right now. Like you could go add some debug statements into anything that you're working with and probably have some useful input and be able to mess with it a little bit. And that's, and you might need to figure that that might not be a long term sustainable way of fixing everything, but it's at least a way to know if you've identified if it's a problem in your library or a way you're implementing with it, that library. So anyways, there's as I reflect on that question, that's that's something that I've I feel like I've appreciated for as, as a developer.
1: Yeah. Being able to dig into your dependencies is a very valuable lesson, as is the idea of driving your UI from data as well. If I had to point to one other thing that's been extremely helpful, it's the notion of trying to keep a good commit history kind of as a, as a message to your future self. There's been lots of times where I needed to know when was this piece of code changed? Why was it changed? What was the larger task? What was the intent? Uh, I'm, I'm a very firm believer in the notion of trying to tell a story through your commits when I'm working on a task, I may end up touching 5, 10, 15 files at once because you know things things always grow as you're working on them. But by the time that I get done, I look at it and say, okay, these three files and these 10 lines of this other file are really a small, coherent set of changes. I'm going to grab each of those, add them, and add a, add a first commit that describes just that small relatively small step grab another couple files add them step and it doesn't necessarily reflect the exact process I used to get to that final point but in a sense I'm kind of telling a story of here's what I was wanting to try to do to get from point A to point D and the intermediate steps along the way and this has a lot of benefits because like if you, if you just make one commit with all the changes at once, then all those files have the exact same commit message. Whereas if you've made these in smaller discrete commits with a more specific message, there's a better chance that when someone else looks at the history of the file later on, there's a more specific explanation of why those were there. Uh, I also think it's very important to always try to refer back to, say, an issue tracker ID at the start of the commit message so that someone can at least go back and look at the issue and understand the broader context of why you were trying to make these changes in the first place. Um, That also means I'm a very firm believer in trying to maintain the history if you're doing larger scale repository operations. Like, say you come into a code base and the code isn't formatted and you want to run a formatting tool on the entire code base. You can do it, but now the history of every single line is going to be last formatted by Mark. And there there are some ways around that, but it, it may be worth taking the time to go look at those so that if someone else looks at it, it's not just formatting command it's the history of changes x y and z before that
0: that's a really good example of when how git messages or git blame can get a little become a little less useful right and you're like cuz you'd made like a complete you ran a linter across the whole repository that stuff happens it's interesting um i'd be curious to learn a little bit more about how to modify that or make that a little bit more helpful but if you have a good link on that, I'd be happy to include that in the show notes for everybody.
1: So I, I did actually do an operation a couple of years ago where I literally rewrote the history of my team's entire Git repository to accomplish three different tasks. The original one was that the repository had a bunch of like large binary files and stuff that had committed that were making the repo literally just take up more space, and they were permanently in there because that's how Git works. So it started with, okay, I want to recreate the repo to strip those out. And when you do that, you're actually forming an entirely alternate Git history. Every single commit ID hash is now different because it's the butterfly effect, something at the beginning changed. And in the process I realized, well, if I'm going to be creating this entirely different history anyway, what else can I do? And so we had a bunch of JavaScript code that had been written by different people over different times with different styles, and it was largely written using the earlier ES5 syntax. So I decided I'm going to try to find a way to automatically convert that code from ES5 to ES6 and run it through an auto-formatter at every step of the way so that it looks like when person X wrote a commit in... July of 2014, they were actually using syntax that didn't even exist yet. And I was able to pull that off, and I documented the process on my blog. I have a whole post about how I rewrote git history. And the net result was that you can go back and look at those commits from years ago, and it still shows the same author, same commit message, readable diff that reflects what they actually did, but the code has been cleaned up. I'm not suggesting that everyone else should go out and do that, but techniques like that are possible if you look at the tools.
0: Interesting. That's cool. I'll definitely include a link to that as well in the show notes. Where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online?
1: Uh, so I tweet at, at AceMarki, and my blog is at blog.isquaredsoftware.com. Uh, I also spend a lot of time hanging out in the Reactive Flux chat channels on Discord also at AceMarki. And I will generally answer questions about React and Redux anywhere there is a text input on the internet.
0: (laughs) Well, that's great. Well, thanks so much, Mark. It's been a delight having you on Maintainable.
1: Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Maintainable.